And uh, therefore, we're going to read a little shorter section of the text than what we have in front of us. Uh, but have you ever stopped, it's Easter week or Holy Week as Christians uh, call it, have you ever stopped to consider the insanity of Easter? And not just the insanity as like a 21st century Western American with chocolate bunnies and uh, yellow marshmallow chiclet thingies and uh, fake green grass that you can never get rid of. It's just, once you have it in your house, it's there for years. Keep finding this stuff. Oh, that's pretty insane. That's fun. Um, But the insanity of what we're actually, what Christians are saying they're doing, which is they are celebrating the death of a Jew that was condemned a criminal 2,000 years ago. Doesn't that sound the slightest bit insane to you? It should. And if it doesn't, then I hope by the end of the night you will see there's a little bit of insanity behind Easter. So I'm going to read uh, sections of Exodus 31 and 32. Some of the stuff that's up there I won't read uh, for the sake of time. All right, starting in 31.18 for context. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone written with the very finger of God. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, your sons, or the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he made an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. All this land that I have promised I'll give to your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Now verse 19 and 20. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, he burned it with fire, he ground it to powder, he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. Verse 30. Next day, 
Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. Now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be gracious to show us great things in your word. We pray that you would show us Jesus. We ask us these things in your name. Lord Jesus, amen. I was working in the children's home after college, and I saw all kinds of very disturbing, strange, insane things working with uh, delinquent teenagers. Uh, but one thing has stuck with me very clearly for 15 years, and uh, it's this. One day I was working out. For me, working out means moving huge amounts of weight. And I was working out, and uh, I was working out with a guy who's actually a teenager, but was a bit, bit bigger than me. And this is what I saw happen. Uh, He was looking for the metal pen that goes in an incline bench. It's a bench where you can move the back up or down and work out at different angles. He couldn't find the metal pen. I saw him grow impatient. So he quickly found a substitute. He found a pencil. It was an easy exchange. They were the same size, so he slid it into the hole to hold the incline bench. Then proceeded to grab two 55-pound dumbbells and throw his 230 pounds with the 110 pounds onto the bench and proceeded to work out. He got through one rep before the back crashed loudly and the weights fell and smashed him in the forehead. Yes. He chose, insanely so, a poor substitute. He's lucky he didn't get killed. What we have here in God's people are people They're longing to get going. They're longing for a touch of the divine. They're hungering for God's presence and all that he is, but they are impatient. And they turn quickly to very poor substitutes for God. And in doing so, they break their relationship with him. They break the covenant. And they bring great harm to themselves in the process. And we are like them. We are like them. We readily find, make, manufacture and serve substitute gods all the time. And in doing so, we fracture our relationship with God. And we don't exactly find the kind of fulfillment we're looking for anyway. We're longing for a taste, a touch of the transcendent. Something to fulfill us, to give us peace, to bring us life. And we look for it often in substitutes for the divine. And it does great harm to our relationship with him. And it still leaves us hungry and longing for more. We're going to see tonight there is help. There is help that comes down in an advocate in the person of Jesus. We'll see tonight that we break our covenant with God, but Jesus is broken for us. And tonight we're going to talk about our wayward hearts. We're going to ask, what's the harm? What's the harm with these uh, divine substitutes? And then we're going to look at the help that we have in Jesus. So, uh, first, the wayward hearts. And it doesn't take long for the people of Israel here to uh, turn quickly out of the way, as God put it. Uh, Moses has gone up on the mountain to talk with God. And what they're doing there is actually talking in depth about the way that God is going to dwell very intensely with his people. 
If you were to go back and read the next, the previous 15 chapters, it would seem boring to you because he's talking about the tabernacle and how he's going to build it and the law. But what they're doing is describing the home they're going to live in together. This is how God's going to move in with his people and share a very close, intimate relationship. They're making that plan now. And while God is making plans with Moses, how he's going to move in with his people, his people very quickly turn. And uh, perhaps it's because they're impatient. Perhaps it's because they're insecure. They turn nevertheless. And what they do is they make an easy exchange. In verses 2 through 4, we see it's very easy how they do this. Uh, God has given them gold. And they take the gold that they received as a gift as they left Egypt. God redeemed them from Egypt, and that's where they're going. As a sign of his great grace and gift, they were given gifts. This thing that should remind them of God and his goodness, they actually take those very good things God gave them and make an idol out of them. It's very easy for them to do it. They have all the materials right there, and this is us too. We have all the materials in life out of the good things God has given us to turn from him and worship those things instead. We do it all the time. And it's very easy for them in another sense. They craft this golden calf. It's a very common cultural idol. Lots of their neighbors actually worshipped something like a golden calf. It was just sort of in the air. And like them, we have all kinds of common cultural idols, comfort, security, power, prestige. It's very easy. And they very easily make this exchange. You look in the text, there's no debate. There's no conflict. No one stands up and says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? It's easy. It's so easy that Romans says it's natural. It's their nature's heart that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling men and beasts. They've seen the immortal God. We talked about this in chapter 20 and 19. There before God on Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, power, God's voice, and they're terrified. They've seen something of the immortal God. They should remember it forever. And just like that, they easily exchange it for something they craft from their earrings. It's that easy. They are exhibiting for us something of the insanity of idolatry. That's what we're talking about is idolatry. They go on in verse 4 and say, uh, hey, these things brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Really? Did you forget? Did you forget what it was like being in slavery? Did you forget what God did in all the plagues to bring you out? Have you forgotten how he revealed himself to you? They've forgotten. And and it's also shown in the preposterous expectations they have. In verse 1, make us a God so it will lead us. They still think they're going to the promised land. They think this idol is going to take them to where God was going to take them. This will get us there. They're in the middle of a desert. They have no idea where they're going. They're trusting God to get them there, and they think this thing is going to do it. It's insane. Idolatry is insane. We think idols will bring us into the promised land will bring us into fulfillment. Uh, Their hearts and our hearts are like a car that's misaligned. You ever driven a car that's out of alignment? Perhaps you don't know what that is, but now you're trying to figure, I'm going to explain to you the phenomenon. The car keeps wanting to turn in a certain direction. If you let go of it, you realize, I'm going to run into that person. I'm going to run into that wall. And you think, there's something wrong with the car. Maybe there's something wrong with the tires. No, it's actually a much deeper problem. It's not the tires. There's something mechanically wrong with the car. It's out of balance. It's misaligned. And our hearts are like that. They turn quickly out of the way. And just like a car, we need more than a little bit of cosmetic washing up. We need to be realigned. What we have here in the Israelites and in this car is an apt picture of our own hearts, if we're honest. Um, 
Our hearts were made to devote themselves to God, but they very quickly turned to substitutes. And, uh, you know, what I'm basically doing is calling you all idolaters, um, and myself as well. We're all idol worshipers. Uh, and if you don't believe me, then uh, where do you turn for comfort? What do you turn for comfort when you're hurting? What do you turn for comfort when the distance between you and God and you and seemingly any other human being that would care for you, what do you turn? What do you turn for joy? Where do you turn for a taste of the transcendent, of something to deeply fulfill you? Do you turn to God and wait? Or do you find a substitute? Do you like intimacy with God or others? Do you look forward in pornography? Or in the arms of someone you shouldn't be sleeping with? When you're longing for comfort or peace from your anxiety, do you turn to God in prayer? Or do you turn to drink? Or do you abuse your prescription drugs? When you're longing for security and purpose, do you turn to your relationship with him and what he said is true of you as his beloved child? Or do you turn back to your performance, your social performance? I'm an important person. Or your academic performance, or just your general intellect. I'm smarter than all those other idiots. Uh, where do you turn? Comfort. Wherever you easily turn, wherever you easily drift, whatever you can't live without, that is your idol. And we've all got them. Actually, we have more than one. But uh, you got one for sure. And we tend to think because it's internal and personal that it doesn't do any harm, right? If it's deep in here, if it's deep in here then uh, it's not a big deal. It can't really harm anything out there in the world. Um, but we see in our text that it has real implications. It, it breaks relationship. When God hears about what the Israelites have done, so quickly turning away, he says, I'm done. Verse 7. Uh, Moses, they used to be my people. I, I said, I will be your God. You'll be my people. Uh, they're your people now. They're your problem. And uh, Moses at first sort of implores on their behalf, but then when Moses goes down and gets a sense of what they're doing, he's walking down the mountain with uh, the, the, the tablets, the two tablets, which has the Ten Commandments on it. And that is the covenant. If you will, that is the marriage contract between God and his people. It's God's promise, his nature. I redeemed you. I brought you out. Now, therefore, this is the way you're supposed to live. When Moses sees the way they're carrying on, the way they're acting, he throws them, he shatters them. So it's a wonderful, powerful picture, not wonderful, it's a powerful picture that the covenant, the relationship, is broken. It's done. Now, um, I, I get to perform marriages. It's pretty awesome. It's a great job being a pastor. And uh, this has never happened, but it could happen. One of, the, one of my jobs after I say, this is the great part of the marriage, uh, I now pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and they walk down the aisle, and everyone claps, and no one pays attention to me, and that's great, because I don't want to be paid attention to. And they're celebrating the couple. Is While they're doing that, I have to run back to the office and grab the marriage contract, and I have to sneak out in an opportune time getting them to sign it. It's all great. It's official paper stuff. This is what this is like. That during that five minutes, I go and get the contract, and I walk up to the groom and give it to him, and he tears it into a thousand little pieces. I say, what's the deal, man? He's like, it's been five minutes and she cheated on me already. That's what this is like. It's what this is like. Because this relationship has just been entered into. God just went to them in chapter 20 and said, I'm your God who brought you out. I love you. 
Will you enter into this relationship with me? And they said, we'll do whatever you want. We'll gladly enter into this relationship with you. And then God says, great. This is how I'm going to move in. I'm going to build a tabernacle. I'm going to move in. And they're like, great. All right, Moses, go talk to God about how you're going to build a tabernacle. And he goes up and lays up. She cheats on him. And God says, I'm done. That's what it's like. Uh, it breaks the relationship. And it's, and it's sad and it's terrible, but it's, it's even worse than that. Uh, because these people are messed up. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that they have issues. God says uh, they're corrupt. And he's known that about them. They've been corrupt the whole time. They're stiff-necked. They're prideful. But they're going to remain that way. They're going to remain bent, broken, skewed. God has said, I, I know you're messed up, but you're going to live with me, and, and you're going to become more like me. You're going to be my holy nation, my sacred people. You're going to reflect me. That's the plan. But that's not going to happen. Not now. They're going to remain bent. They're going to be doomed to be just like they are, to not change, to not grow, because your idols will not change you for the better. They simply conform to all your brokenness and affirm them. But don't challenge them or grow you in any way. And to make it even sadder, what we have here at the beginning of this whole story is God taking the brokenness of the original group of people in the beginning of Genesis and saying, we're going to start all over. I have a great plan for the world. I'm going to bring redemption, wholeness, restoration to the world. I'm going to do it through this people. I'm going to bring them to myself. I'm going to show them my love. I'm going to make them like me. They're going to share the knowledge. It's going to be so apparent what I'm like because of the way they love each other and love me that the whole world will know that's God's plan. He is recreating Eden. He really is. I'm going to take you into the promised land. I'm going to live with you. It's going to be awesome. And just like the first couple, they throw it away. We're reliving the fall all over. And the consequences are a broken relationship. They're going to remain bent and broken. And just like in the garden, the consequence is death. The first couple experienced death, and we resulted as well. And in this chapter, I read over some of the verses. I skipped them. But the immediate result of their, their treachery is death. God puts some of them to death. Because what they're doing here is replacing the true and living God with something that will kill them. That's what idolatry is, replacing the true and living God who comes to bring you life with something that will kill you. Uh, one of my pastor friends in RUF knows someone who sleeps with a snake. He's from the mountains of West Carolina. This makes a bit more sense. And um, this is not some tiny little uh, garden snake. It's actually a massive boa constrictor. Each night she gives half of her bed to this large snake. And uh, obviously, in order to do this, you have to be somewhat obsessed with your reptile. But she became quite concerned uh, when it stopped eating. And it wouldn't even take a piece of bread. So she took it to the doctor. Uh, and the doctor took one second to conclude what was going on. Whenever a snake is about to eat a really large prey, it stops eating so it can make room. That's what was going on. Snake was readying himself for a feast. Some uh, West Virginia mama. And um, this, <laughs> this is what our idols do to us. This is the insanity of idolatry that we invite into our bed, into our lives, into our hearts, substitutes for what should be there, the true God, and instead we take things in that consume us 
Instead of bringing us life, they bring us death. That's good news in this text. Man, so far, you're like, man, this is the most down, dour Easter sermon ever. Uh, that's good news. That despite our wayward hearts and the harm that they cause, that there's hope on the way. And we see this pictured in the person of Moses. First in his advocacy, he advocates for them in 11 through 14. It's really amazing. If you've been with us all semester, if you remember at the beginning when God said, hey, Moses, I want you to do this. He's like, I don't want to do it. Let someone else do it. Please, anybody else. I can't talk. Here, he is an advocate. He is passionately arguing for the people. As a mediator, his job is to mediate between God and his people. And we sort of understood this almost one way up to this point. God says something, and Moses says, okay, and then goes tells the people. But it works the other way, too. Here, God's saying, I'm done. I'm going to destroy them. I quit. And Moses says, excuse me, God, but let me remind you, you made promises. You redeemed these people. You brought them out. What will your enemies think? And it works. It works. He's an advocate. And uh, that being said, it still is not enough. And Moses knows it. He knows it and acknowledges in verse 30 and following that uh, the sin they've committed, the treachery, the betrayal is so big that uh, nothing but death um, will satisfy God. They, they deserve to die. He knows that more than words are needed. He knows that a life must be given. And so he says in verse 30, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, I expect Moses, really, when he said, perhaps I can make atonement, was saying, I know atonement needs to be made, but I've got no idea how to make it. I think that's probably what he was saying. Like, I've got no idea how to fix this. I know this is how it needs to be fixed, but I don't know exactly how to fix this huge mess. Perhaps, maybe, somehow, I can make atonement. And some of you are saying, what in the world does atonement mean? It's a great question. Um, the word means to cover, to blot out. It's the word that's often used for the process by which God forgives people. Uh, atonement is appeasing God's wrath so that he can forgive. And Moses has a hint how this is done. In verse 31, he says, God, please forgive your people. But if not, blot me out of your book. Actually, the word for atonement can be sort of understood as a blotting out. Cover up the record of my sin. Blot it out. And God's saying, Moses is saying to God, blot it out. And if not, blot me out. Take me. It's a take me instead story. In September 2012, a store owner named Juan Rodriguez, who owned the JNL market, was working like he did every day for 22 years. Uh, when a robber entered in and pulled a knife on him, Mr. Rodriguez, being an experienced store owner of 22 years, calmly reached behind the counter and pulled out a baseball bat and chased him out of the store. The thief, Mr. Joseph DeFreitas, uh, was then subsequently cornered by the irate neighbors who began to beat him savagely. Actually, they were on their way to killing him when moments later, someone threw themselves on top of him to protect him from the blows. It was Mr. Rodriguez. The same one who was just attacked, who, who just had a knife pulled on him, comes to the rescue at the cost of his own livelihood, perhaps, in order to save this thief. Israel has rejected. They've rejected God, and they rejected Moses, too. Who is this Moses guy? We don't know what happened to him. <laughs> Literally, 
Let's just leave the guy on the mountain. <laughs> he rescued you from slavery, and you said, just forget him. And that's exactly what they did. And this is what we do. And uh, a divine beating is on the way for them. It really is. It's on the way. And Moses, their advocate, says, I'll take it. Give it to me instead. The problem in our text, and the text only presents it as a problem, because it doesn't really answer it, is God doesn't accept it. doesn't even answer it. Moses recognizes this is what's necessary. An atonement must be made. But when Moses brings it up, God says, nope, they're going to have to answer for it. Because Moses isn't able to provide that atonement. He's not worthy. He doesn't have the capital. He can't bear someone else's sin. He can't bear someone else's guilt. In other words, this is like someone about to be executed on death row. And at 1155, another death row inmate comes to the Lord and says, I'll take his place. Great. Okay. Both of you at the same time. Uh, (laughs) Moses deserves it too, and we all do. None of us are able to offer atonement. You're not able to fix yourself. You're not able to atone for yourself. You can't fix the problem you've made. You can't fix the broken relationship. And we try. We try it with promises. We try it with penance. We try it with guilt. We beat ourselves up in shame. But you lack the capital, just like Moses. You cannot fix this. 1 John 2 tells us there is someone that can If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That righteous one means he has all the capital on earth we need. He is the propitiation for our sin. That's a word very close to atonement. He's the one that bears sin, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he is so worthy that he can cover everyone's sin. Jesus is the able advocate who can make perfect atonement. He is a helper who's available. Do you recognize you have a problem? Do you recognize you have a problem? That you break relationship? That you break covenant? That you substitute God's end for the real God all the time? And that it really causes harm in your life? And then, not only do you recognize you have a problem, do you receive his help? Will you trust and rest in him? started this whole thing off by saying that Easter was sort of insane, and I stand behind that. I really do. There's some insanity to it. I mean, think about all the crazy stuff we talked about. Wayward hearts. It's, it's crazy how quickly their hearts and our hearts turn out of the way. God is showing them how good he is, and while he's planning how to move in, they quickly jettison him. They substitute idols for a taste of the divine. And then the insanity of the harm that's caused. You just keep running to those same substitute gods all the time, even though it breaks the relationship, even though those things don't bring us life. They do for a moment. But in the end, they don't, they don't deliver. They don't bring us life. It's insane as well. But the most insane part of this whole story and of Easter as well, is this. That in spite of all this insanity, of how quickly we turn aside our wayward hearts and the harm we cause, that help comes. That's what's insane. What's insane about this text is that God doesn't wipe them out. That he sends an advocate. What's insane is that Jesus 
comes at all. That we, who quickly run from God to poor God substitutes, yet God quickly provides a substitute for us. It's insane. We quickly run to substitutes for God, and he readily provides a substitute for us. We are the kind of people that break his heart, we break the covenant, we break the relationship, and Jesus comes to be broken for us, to be broken on a cross for us, so we can have a relationship with him. Let's pray together.